This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey friends, welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. Claude Acho here with Austin Cardi, and we're going to be talking about the theme, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, gentleness. This is um, one that also is related to Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the meek shall inherit the earth. Gentleness and meekness, two things that come together. Uh, One thing I think about when it comes to gentleness, uh, and Austin, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is debates and arguments. I think about the sort of context within our families, within our churches, our communities, and then also in our country as Americans, um, the sort of uh, heightened rhetoric, uh, the sort of anger, the sort of high level of inability to listen, to hear, and to be heard. And I think about uh, from Proverbs uh, 15, uh, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer uh, quiets wrath, uh, depending on how you translate it. So that's what I think about when I think about gentleness. I think about, oh, gentleness, it's a way to uh, calm the temperature and allow people to be seen, to be heard, and to move towards each other. Also, when you think about gentleness, this part of the uh, fruit of the spirit, what, what, what image comes to mind? What is it about gentleness that is needed? And what is it about gentleness that maybe we, we miss? I think one of the important things about it is that gentleness seems to be by definition unanxious uh when we talk about uh, angry biting polarized culture that uh is seemingly always spoiling for a fight and we think about that proverb and to what degree it's true and i think it's very true I think that in a moment like this, a fruit like gentleness is even more demonstrable than it may have been in other uh, moments in time, because so seldom are we seeing the true fruit of gentleness. And I think that we see it most clearly when in this fractious, fighting, mad climate that we're in, we encounter people who can hear those things and are rendered rendered unanxious by it and are able to respond with whatever their opinion or conviction might be, but in a gentle way. And rather than being the people that shout louder or try to marshal even more emotivism to make their point come through or marshal their argument with redoubled uh, amounts of logic and and persuasive technique, just somebody who responds with a tone of gentleness, to me, is the one that actually might be heard and might make a difference. Uh, Maybe that's just hopefulness and maybe I'm just overly optimistic, but uh, I think that in this moment right now, gentleness is one of the spruits uh, that means the most to me. And it's, it's missing on a lot of trees out there, you know, maybe ours included, but it's one that's <laughs> yes. needed. It, yes. You know, your comments too, they, they remind me of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the, the famous um, preacher from England, 
uh, his, he's got a big volume on the Sermon on the Mount, and it talks about meekness. And I was already mentioning that connection, meekness and gentleness. And I think he makes the, the point that others have made, and I think it's on track, that meekness or gentleness, um, meekness is maybe he, he defines a little bit more as sort of how you sort of see yourself, gentleness a little bit more, how you operate uh, to and with others. But he makes the point that both of those ideas can be assumed as weakness, that to be gentle is to be weak. It's to be a sort of doormat. It's to make yourself um, kind of a, a road that people tread upon. But but rather, it's actually strength. It's strength under control. It's strength being channeled in a purposeful direction. And I think about you know gentleness. We think about the ability maybe in a conversation with a loved one, child, a brother, good close friend, where rather than um, uh, blowing up, you're able to uh, be restrained and to be gentle, uh, to be truthful. You got to say what you need to say, but you're measured and you know how to do that. And you can do so with a sort of kindness. So I think about gentleness as being um, a tremendous sort of strength uh, rather than a sort of uh, flimsy um, posture, kind of like a, a sort of spineless being. You're actually, you're strong, you know, and you're strong enough to know how to hold back. You're strong enough to know the way that a person needs to hear something uh, so that they can be helped and loved and be guided in the right way. It takes a lot of maturity, a lot of wisdom to be able to be gentle, which also I think raises a question for me. Um, and maybe you can ponder this for a second. Uh, I'll put you on the spot here. Characters in literature that are gentle. Uh, I'm curious for listeners, uh, if there's readers or characters that come to mind, maybe even in film or TV too, uh, y'all should hit us up, comment and let us know. Austin, for you, is there anybody that comes to mind as a character that embodies what we're talking about in terms of the strength of gentleness? Well, the first and obvious answer for me is the character and the novel that this uh, conversation we're having precedes. I, I would say... That's a good call. <laughs> uh, yeah, John, John Ames in the book Gilead, that in the interview that will follow uh, this conversation you and I are having, Claude, uh, I'll be talking with uh, my friend, the author Tommy Brown, about Gilead. Uh, but to me, the, the narrator of Gilead, John Ames, uh, an aging Congregationalist minister, the way that his reflection on his entire life and his ministry and on the world, the way that he does it, the fruit that comes through to me the most is gentleness. Uh, he's, he's just a gentle man, uh, but that gentleness springs from a strength like you're describing right now. Um, and as we think about gentleness in this context, it's impossible not to think of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about um, the weakness of God being uh, stronger uh, than, than, than human strength and uh, that the wisdom of God um, or the foolishness of God is, is wiser than, uh, than human wisdom. And it does, I think, look oftentimes like weakness. There's, there's, a, there's an aspect of faith that has to be involved, that it's not weakness, that it's actually coming a place from a place of real strength. Uh, but then <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is for others to make a faith claim of, is it wisdom or is it foolishness? Is it, <laughs> is it strength or is it weakness? Um, 
And I think that there's a great lurking temptation to try to make Christianity as something that it's not, that's something that's a road to power and uh, to, to, to kind of a worldly wisdom that uh, seems to be, in my view, antithetical to the cross, but yet I nonetheless understand why folks are so drawn to it. And Nietzsche himself was the one that called this out. He said that we've created, we've we, we, we've inverted the values, the transvaluation values, that the great caper that Christianity has pulled off as we've turned what is a vice into a virtue. Weakness, we've named it something better by calling it humility and raising it to a virtue, but really it's just weakness. If we could just mark the strength of who we are, uh, then 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 we could actually uh, summon our will to power and, and become truly human. Um, I get all of that, you know, I really do. But I still, at the end of the day, think that there's something that's even stronger about gentleness. And I think that, that Jesus was pointing to something when on the cross, he was able to, to, to take in the jeers of save yourself if you really are the Messiah. Um, there's, there's something gentle about even that, that, that final scene in that final moment. But anyway, to, to, to answer that, the, the first character that comes to mind for me is the very character we're going to be talking about in the, in the interview that follows John Ames. What about for you? I mean, no one comes to mind, man. That's a good, that's a good word. I mean, my preacher answer who comes to mind is Jesus, you know, just as you mentioned, I mean, I think gentleness, I think of, I think of him, I would have to kind of flip through my stacks a little bit and sort of refresh my mind there. I I think though, that is the right, the right way to sort of end or really transition into this conversation on Gilead is that, you know, gentleness, um, we, we see it fully in, in Jesus, right? He knew how to be tender and he knew when to, um, when to let his passion and his words really flow in a sort of deeply potent way. And he knew when to uh, be restrained and to comfort. I'm reminded as well of uh, Isaiah 42, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, right? The sort of gentleness that that God has uh, known most fully to us in Jesus. So I think that's a good word. I think that's a great way to transition to this conversation on Gilead. So everybody hope you stick around uh, and enjoy this combo that uh, Austin has. Hey everyone, this is Austin. I am so excited to be joined today by Wynn Collier. Wynn is the director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary, as well as an associate professor of pastoral theology and Christian imagination. Wynn is also the author of several books, notably among them, A Burning in My Bones, the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, as well as a personal favorite of mine, Love Big, Be Well, Letters to a Small Town Church. Wynn holds a PhD in religion and literature from the University of Virginia, where his dissertation focused on the sacramental vision of Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry being the celebrated Kentuckian author whose novel Jaber Crow, Wynn and I are connecting today to discuss. Wynn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thanks for having me, Austin. It's a joy. Well, I've told you off air and via email before. This is the first time you and I have ever actually connected, but I've told you that I've been following your work for some time and it's meant a lot to me. And uh, so just getting the chance to talk to you right now, particularly about Wendell Berry and a little bit about Eugene Peterson, too, and your approach to ministry and faith. This is a real gift to me. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, Your life's work centers around forming 
faithful pastors, faithful Christians, and your vision for that work was clearly informed by Wendell Berry. How would how would you say that books like Jaber Crow and other Port William fiction, for that matter, have helped form you as a person of faith? Yeah, well, I think they do what the best stories and the best books do, which is they expand our capacity to envision possibilities. And so, you know, sometimes words, even the best words kind of get stuck and we have associations with them. So we hear an old familiar word and it immediately leads us down a track of what we think that must mean. But you read someone like Wendell who takes such care with words and, and uses them so sharply and at times even pugnaciously, you know, and, and, and you're, I'm kind of taken aback by like, Oh, I, that feels, it's very plain spoken, but it's not simplistic in any sense. And, um, so, you know, since you already sort of raised the connection, I, I actually uh, really found my way to Wendell because of Eugene, um, you know, because Eugene was such a deep reader of Wendell. And he used to always say um, that when he reads Wendell, if you sep- if you replace the word farmer with pasture and farm with church, it almost always works to get a deep theological vision. And I, and I thought, that's really interesting. And is that true? And I began to, to read Wendell and that's what happened to me. I was like, oh my goodness, it's, you know, you can talk about incarnation and then you can read a story that's talking about, um, and leading me into an experience with the, the most rooted local human, um, uh, fleshy, realities of a farm and land and people and characters and all of a sudden incarnation is sort of blown apart in my imagination so um i i found wendell's work to be deeply congruent with a profoundly christian vision of the world but not like in a way that just um patted me on the back and told me i I had it right and to keep moving but actually a corrective as well like oh this this might be more in line with what god had in mind or what the reality of the implications of the reality of the true human in jesus you know being born or in a particular place might mean for me and so it just gave me an, a, a really expanded picture and i think the best stories do that they i'm reading right now um little novel uh, uh laris um and it's it's so it's it's kind of um, uh, how would I put it? Not, not offbeat's not quite the right word, but it, it has a different cadence and tone, and yet it's constantly sort of making me pause and hear the impact of of its words and feel the ethos of its characters and the pain and the hope and the grace. And I think a good story can um, is one of the only things that can do that for us. I love that, and I love the way that you pulled out incarnation specifically as one of the things that theologically takes on flesh, so to speak, uh, with no pun intended, uh, through Barry's fiction. Because one of the things that I find about Wendell Berry and 
obviously we're talking specifically about Jabra Crow here, but you can't talk about just one Port Williams story without talking about the full corpus is that one of the things about the incarnation is it's not just took on a body. It's took on that particular, right? This particular body. And one of the things that I just am always struck by in Wendell Berry books like Jaber Crow is how place and time are such central aspects of the stories. They're characters in and of themselves. Uh, it's not just any place. It's that place. It's Port William. It's not just any time. It's that specific time and what's happening in it. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? And, and if so, what, what role do you think place and time play in Jaber Crow? You couldn't put this story in any place. It has to be in the world he's created of Port William. And, um, you know, I've heard uh, recently Wendell say that uh, it's, it's why you have to start with local ideas. And he was thinking of like solutions to our biggest social problems, political issues. He says, if you start with a national idea with no idea of whether or not it actually works in a local context, then it's, it's useless. You have to find out first, does it work in this one single place? And then if, if it does, maybe it'll work in other places. But, um, and so it seems to me like, like Wendell writes in a way that says you have to understand this one single solitary place. And, and it is true though, as I'm reading this one about this one single solitary place, I find myself in it. I mean, I know it's kind of loosely based on Port Royal where he actually lives. Um, so I've been there, but I've never been to Port William. But the more I get to know Port William, I feel like the more I know my little neighborhood. And there, that's something that's powerful about incarnation is the more that we understand the one true human Jesus Christ, the more we actually do understand something about all of humanity. And so place, particularity... Um, I mean, Eugene used to say, um, all the theology is geographical. Um, you can't get away from those particulars. And the more we abstract ourselves, and I think that's one of the things we're discovering as a, as a, as a, as a people, as a, as a, um, as a, as a Christian subculture is the more abstracted we get, the more dangerous we become. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And it's such a, counterintuitive countercultural message for us too for the way that we're programmed we tend to immediately think in scale and uh rather than localized and and, and particularized and that's so true i think of the church and, and of ministry and it's one of the reasons why i'm so drawn to folks like peterson and and barry because they offer an antidote to that i think and um you know, you talk about having ever been to Port William, but that it 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 feels real to you. It's it's it, it seems to me that it it's not only that it's real; it's more real, even though it's a fictional place. It's more real. And I think of the passage in Jaber Crow where he talks about when the water's still, and you can see the reflection there off of the water. That somehow it's even more real than the thing that it's the reflection of. And he's obviously talking about it as being a pointer toward you know 
the eternal that time is just a part of. But I think that's what this really good particularized fiction does to your point is that, no, we've never been to Port William, but in some ways, in many ways, it's more real to us than places we really have been. Yeah. And I think that's because at least if we're reading well, um, we're, we're getting immersed in this place and we're paying attention to details and tones. Whereas um, sometimes as we're just sort of gliding through life, we're not paying attention and we're not paying hearing the, the cadence and we're not uh, getting the details. And so there's something about this that actually is going to a deeper place. Well, one of the things that I was struck by when I at first read your love, big be well book is how it is a pastor concerned with those small details and not just concerned as if those are ancillary, but still important aspects of ministry. But if those are the sum total of those small things together, uh, come together to then become the 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 whole reason for for being the the minister there in the context, um, and that book along with um, all of Eugene Peterson's books that that highlight the importance of a long obedience in the same direction. You know that uh, he says what is in and under the unpredictable plant. He enjoins pastors to stay, <laughs> the, to, to root, to stay. And all of those have been for me as, as a person of faith and as a, and as a, a pastor, uh, significant encouragement for the, the fruit of faithfulness and um, faithfulness to a place and to a people and not just to a, an abstract idea. And, um, I don't know of any place to go uh, from a fictional standpoint to better learn about the virtue of faithfulness and the fruit of the spirit that Paul enumerates as, as faithfulness than the Port William novels and Jaber Crow particularly. Um, in this season of our podcast, we're looking at fruits of the spirit and I'm really interested in, in talking to you about how you see faithfulness as being a principal theme in Jaber Crow. Where, where do you see that? How do you see that coming through? And then how, by extension, do you see that as a primary theme of what Wendell Berry has been doing uh, across the decades with Port William? I mean, it starts from the very beginning of even, you know, when he's at the Good Shepherd uh, place, the orphanage, and, and then when he's in, in college and, and he's and he's desperately searching for for reality, for truth, for questions. And his professors, you know, can't quite handle some of his questions. And it's it, but it's because it, he's not just being obnoxious. It's because he he wants to be true, and he keeps feeling this this urge that he doesn't even can't even know how to how to name to to, to return home. That it's being faithful to that one place, and then. Um, I mean, a lot of readers aren't going to be interested in this particular way of reading Jaber, but because of my interests, you know, one of the things I found really compelling was understanding Jaber as um, a kind of pastor to Port William. And um, pre precisely in the context of, in almost all of Eugene's novels, save one short story, the pastors are always 
the, the people who are the only people who aren't part of the membership is the pastors. They're the ones who are passing through, not committed, um, aloof. And, and yet I, and, and again, I don't think this is uh, necessarily intentional on Wendell's part. I think it's just kind of sort of flowed out of who he was. In fact, I'm always, you know, I wonder if maybe we should have started though, by like um, reading just that little preface in Jaber Crow, if we're going to be talking about interpreting him, you know what I'm talking about? That notice. Yes, yes, yes. If telling us not to do exactly what we're doing right now. The notice says, uh, I'll read it. Um, Persons attempting to find a text in this book will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a subtext in it will be banished. Persons attempting to explain, interpret, exculpate, uh, explicate, analyze, deconstruct, or otherwise understand it will be exiled to a desert island in the company only of other explainers by order of the author. <laughs> um, so I always talk about about Jaber Crow with uh, a little fear and trembling, but um, you know he he goes home. He takes on this vocation as a barber, and he never marries, um, precisely out of faithful love, right, to the woman that he couldn't have because she was committed to another, and yet he commits to faithfully love her, no less. And I think that's a that's a I think a, a wonderful study of Jaber Crow would be his 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 how he understands love and romantic love, because he loved he, he loved her um, deeply. And yet that love could not possess. Um, so he's faithful to her, even to the end. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful scenes, that closing scene, you know. Um, he's faithful to his neighbors, even the ones he didn't like, you know. He, he, becomes, he becomes basically a monk, and he has a little monk cell above the, the barber shop. And the, the barber's chair becomes a confessional. And he... He commits to love these people, to be with these people, to not abandon these people. Um, you know, even the fact they didn't have a car, you know, and he'd walk and, and it, because he felt like the whole world was there, all the world that he'd been called to. And he, and you never get the sense from Jaber that he's in any way limited. Like, I mean, sure, he, he's, he's constrained by his commitments, but he's not. Is he hasn't lost freedom. <laughs> he he hasn't, um, and yet the faithfulness expands new possibilities for him. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Yeah, it's it's not it's not even that he has felt he's he's liberated. It's like because of the limits and the he he he's freer when he gives up the car <laughs> than he was when he was driving it it's one of the things that going back and rereading this uh because it'd been years since I'd, I'd read it and then getting to reread this for our conversation i had forgotten just how profound some of 
the commentary on uh, just how um, enmeshed we are in technological progress and how uh, being untethered from some of those things that seem so important actually enables us to breathe uh, more freely in a way than um, when when being completely um, enthralled to them. And yeah, and I love that you talk about thinking of Jaber as a pastor, and he talks a few times about his life in Port William and his role as a barber as being a calling. But there's a great line that I thought of as you were just saying that, where when he comes upon Maddie, his his love interest that you just spoke to, uh, as she's out seemingly alone on her face crying by her daughter's headstone. And he says, I knelt beside her according to my calling in this world. And, you know, there are a couple of really powerful moments where he's with Matt Feltner when Matt breaks down uh, and he just goes over and sits beside him and they don't say anything. And then finally Matt says, well, and stands up and, and leaves. And these are these pastoral moments where he's there with folks in their brokenness. And uh, and Barry even calls it a, a calling. I knelt beside her as my calling in this world. He was her pastor. And I, <laughs> I love to hear you talk about the way that pastors are um, depicted in, in these books because we don't often come off so well (laughs) um you know other than that 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 one that that one short story um it it never really seems to be a a very positive commentary on pastors a lot of times it seems it's because they're in such a hurry to to leave they're not faithful to the place they don't they don't see it as a place they see it as a stepping stone to somewhere else and their eyes are on bigger and better um, it always makes me think of that line from Hannah Coulter where he says they're always in a hurry to find a better place, which means they're going to find themselves in no place. <laughs> That's such a, a great way of thinking about it. Um, but one of the things that I noted when when rereading this that I, I was struck by is he then goes through, he Jaber, um, thinking about various pastors that have come through and Uh, He says, and I've got the line here, he says, a few of those young preachers were bright and could speak, and they were troubled enough in their own hearts to have something to say. These are the ones that he was actually trying to shine a slightly positive light on. And what I was struck by was that uh, he connects his elevated estimation of these few pastors with their having a kind of troubled enough heart to have something to say. What do, you, what do you make of that? One of the most um, disturbing scenes to me is when the Feltner's son dies and the pastor shows up. And that whole, it's a couple pages scene. I don't know if you remember where, I mean, from the moment the pastor is walking, it's like the sky is gray and it's, you just get this strange scene. And he and he gets up to the, the door and he he kind of shuffles for a second and he makes sure he, he grabs his Bible in the right spot and he you know, knocks on the door with kind of like this pastoral air. And in the next, you know, the, the next paragraphs, it's, it's just this guy's kind of trying, but you get the sense that he's playing a role, that it hasn't sunk into who he is. And so he's, there's even this one, part where he's sitting in the in the parlor and 
it's it's like he's sitting on one of those tall back chairs on the on the platform of a of a sanctuary by himself above and separate from everyone else in such a way that um actually isn't priestly <laughs> it's 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 um it's removed and that preacher that pastor was there it seemed to do his duty but he wasn't deeply troubled his heart wasn't carrying the grief he wasn't in his own person moved by the plight of his parishioners and his friends and his neighbors and and i think there's also something there at least when i read it about your heart being troubled it seems to me it's also about a kind of hard-won conviction you know there, there's a way that we can throw out trite truths if you want to call it that um but when it's removed from uh, a deep place in the soul it actually becomes less true and so i think it's something about um ourselves being engaged and present and that our stories intertwined with the person that we're with so that we too i mean i don't know what pastoral presence means if it doesn't mean bearing their burdens with them as opposed to trying to teach them something that that's my read on on this too and that that scene that you just explained from from hannah coulter when the feltner's son dies it's just painful to to read as as a pastor and there's also that scene from memory of old jack that's somewhat similar when old jack beecham finally dies and the preacher shows up at matt feltner's house and he's i'm so sorry i'm so sorry matt feltner has that great line son what are you sorry for it ain't a shame when a man dies at the end of his life you know it's it's like he has this script and there's 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 a an emotion he's trying to as the pastor will himself into, but not feeling his way into the situation and not, not having a sense of place in the Port William membership. And that's one of the things that as a pastor who loves these Port William books so deeply, it breaks my heart to see the pastors be the kind of the one vocation that really is outside of, of the membership. Um, and it, it feels like when he, when he says here that, these had something to say because their hearts were troubled. It's it. It's like they have. There's a theology of the cross there that that's not 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 a theology of glory, and it's not, you know, bromides that they're offering or just trite lines, but that they're they're drawn into sorrow and suffering because they themselves understand what sorrow and suffering is and don't think they have the magic answers or the words to to provide the healing. They can just offer their presence, which is why, to your point, Jaber's the real pastor. He comes and sits quietly and kneels beside and actually is able to minister whatever presence there is uh, to, to, to be offered in a moment like that. Uh, what You know, one of the things, and, and like you just said, not everybody listening to this are pastors, so maybe this is just self-indulgent here to ask this question, but it's something that I've thought about a lot as a pastor. Somebody who's taken with the faithfulness that Port William membership represents and somebody who, like Eugene Peterson, understands that as membership in the church. Um, 
one of the things that always breaks my heart is that what really is the it's it's the it's the relationship that builds and the sum total that accrues at compound interest over time that makes this faithful, quiet, simple way of life just so rich and so meaningful. It's something where all these little acts, they're not exciting. You couldn't post them on social media and get tons of hearts and likes. But unlike those things that are really exciting and fleeting, they they build. And when you look back on 30, 40 years of this, they have grown into something that's far richer and more meaningful than any string of exciting, thrilling uh, moments. So it's it's about just that sticking and rooting and being there. Um, and then in the Port William novels, they they then, when when one of them passes, the, everybody's there around and and. Um, and, and it's part of the, the membership that's passed. It seems to me that the way that we, in my view, rightly tend to operate in ministry is that we as pastors are the ones who are trying to help cultivate this kind of rootedness in community. But then when it's time for us to retire, typically the best thing we can do for the person who's going to come in to play that role next is, is to extricate ourselves from the community. So, I've always found there to be an irony there and, and a bit of a disjunct between being called to try to cultivate this long-term thing and be faithful to it, but then being called at the end uniquely, I think, to then be at a remove from it rather than stay in it the long term. Have you ever thought about it that way or what uh, What would you say in response to, to that analysis? I think it is part of the unique vocation of being a pastor. Um, I mean, I know in some denominations they require like the pastor to leave for a year, but then they can return, which feels a little different to me. Um, and there's something about that that feels healthy, um, that you have that s- sense of separation, but then the pastor can return into the community in a different way. So kind of on practical terms, there's something about that, that I, that I like. Um, but there also might be reasons too where that might not work for the pastor <laughs> um, for various for various reasons. But um, I, I mean, I feel like this is tied to like lots of things that come up about Wendell, um, particularly maybe even more in his his essays. You know, his his um, his uh, sort of political, and by that I mean that in the broadest sense, his public um, way of living is that sometimes, you know, it's like you can drill down so much on the very particular details that we miss the broad um, the broad implications of what, what Wendell's saying. I think the same is true of, of Eugene as well. And so, I mean, I think there's probably just some reality to being – fully present and then needing to pull away. That is um, one of the unique burdens that have to be taken in. Um, and that's a hard, a hard thing. But I think the, the broader question is, I mean, if we could be in a place that at the end of our time there, that's our problem. I think that's a really, really good sign. 
that that's a great that's a great answer. I've never thought I've thought about this a lot actually, and I've never thought about it that way. That's a really it's a really helpful reframing. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, and I do I think it's healthy for a, a pastor to step aside and let the new pastor come in. I'm, I'm fully in favor of that, you know. And I just think there's something unique to the vocation and something that's sad about dedicating life to trying to cultivate that long-term to the end faithfulness and then being asked to step away uh, after having done all of that. And this is probably a really bad like analogy. So I probably should stop after saying that, but I will like stupidly move forward. Um, I I wonder if there are some, some slight similarities between like being a parent and the ways that we are called to be with present alongside our children but in a future season, you know, as they get married and like, there's some real release that has to happen. And I'm not saying that as pastors, we're the parents of the congregation. I'm not saying that, but I just wonder if there are some, some, it's not completely unusual that radical commitment to relationship with doesn't mean that there aren't seasons that have to look really differently. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's a I think that's a very helpful comparison. It makes me think of C.S. Lewis distinguishing between gift love and need love, and with with the parent child relationship, he talks about how that is not uh, 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 a symmetrical relationship. That's an asymmetrical thing, and so perhaps a healthy way to think about what we're talking about is that as as pastors, we're called for this to be a gift love. We're cultivating a need love for everyone else, and it's a it's a gift to love here. That's no, that's, that's, that's a great conversation. I'm glad we stumbled into that. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, so one of the other things that I find, uh, significant in, in this book, uh, and in all the books, uh, that's kind of a necessary thing to say with each of the insights and questions is it said there's such a piece across the, the span of these books. It's, um, amazing how consonant the themes are, but, uh, in this book, no less, memory is such a central aspect of it. Jaber says early in the novel, back at the beginning of my life, as I see now, my life was all time and no memory. And now nearing the end, I see that my life is almost entirely memory and very little time. Why do you think memory is such a key concept in this book and in all of Barry's fictional work? It is. I mean, you have the novel, The Memory of Old Jack, remembering. I think it has to have something to do with actually how, what he means when he says memory. And it's obviously not only the mental faculty to recall events, but it's it's his, it's his larger um, sense of reality that... Um, you know, it's like the, his 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 notions of the, the communion of saints that they're that this great community. We're always connected to one another. Um, that it's it's ongoing, and there are others are the past is more present to us than we believe, and um, those who've gone before us are more present with us than we believe. And so, I think memory is a is um, Well, I should pause and say, I think I'm now starting to venture into saying more than I actually know. So with that caveat, (laughs) um, I I think memory is a way of talking about this deep 
profound reality that we are deeply connected. All that's happened to us is present in us and to us now. And all who have been part of our life, even if they're gone, are not gone. That we carry within us, and the community carries within it, uh, the reality, the story that is more than just information or mere memorials of past events. But the memory is the living, breathing, burning reality, which again, I don't want to impose this on you, uh, Wendell, but that's a deeply theological. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I will say in reading Wendell over the years, I came to far have a far deeper understanding of the communion of saints um, and to what it means to be part of a story, part of a history, part of a tradition. Um, and I think it's sort of our ways we categorize things. Sometimes that can be seen as just sort of these compartmentalized, compartmentalized parts of our brain, but it's actually making me who I am. And so um, I think it's a way of naming the truth about our reality. That's so beautiful. So well put. And I think that's spot on. I love that. Um, as we wrap up, because I want to be mindful of and conscientious of your time, I could sit here and talk with you about this all day when, <laughs> but uh, definitely want to draw folks attention to uh, what y'all are doing at the Peterson center. Um, everything I see just looks amazing. And to connect that to what we're talking about here, in what ways would you say the work that you were doing uh, at the Peterson Center is informed by um, various ideas and themes that are found in Jaber Crow and in the Wendellberry books and various themes that uh, that Peterson himself was inspired by through Wendellberry? Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever thought of it exactly in that term, and I also wouldn't want to hoist onto Wendell any of our foibles or <laughs> um, so anything we're doing that's that's goofy or incongruent um, is our fault. I mean, what we're in the Peterson Center, what we deeply care about is is being human, being holy. And that's what I find when I read Port William. I find this profound humanness and a deep reverence for this world and this life. Um, that I believe is because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so, and then from that, we deeply care about the church and those who pastor the church. And I think, you know, we're, we're in a crisis moment. Um, and I think many of the, the ills, the regrets, the um, hubris that Wendell names are the, are, are showing up very much in the church. This is not just an issue of politics or cultural life only. Um, this is not just an issue of agricultural and land and food and um, care for for creation. This is um, this is absolutely the crisis within the church, um, and it's why when I read when I read J uh, Jaber Crow, and I see the things that Jaber was concerned about, you know, I might have to like change a little bit of the details or the reference. But I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm concerned about too. This is what's breaking my heart too. This is what I'm hopefully troubled about enough in my own soul that maybe every once in a while I might have something to say. Um, and it's why I'm often deeply 
concerned about, disconnected from, uh, worried by the big solutions from the big people um, on the big platforms um, because it feels like it's more of the same. We're not grappling with what the real concerns are. We're not grappling with what it means to be human before God. We're not really grappling with what it means to be holy before God. Um, we're talk, we talk too much. We're too loud. We're too certain. We're not certain enough about the right things. <laughs> um, I mean, we're in a deep, deep chaos. And when I, when I read um, Jaber, when I read Wendell's short stories and read other novels, when I, read, when I immerse myself in the world of Port William, I feel like I found a friend who's helping me find a little bit of the light again and the way forward. That's beautiful. And you, for so many of us, are one of those friends through your words and through what you're cultivating there at the center who's doing that for so many of us. So on behalf of all of uh, those who fall under uh, that that banner, I, I thank you and I thank you for your time with us today. Everyone, if you have not yet, please uh Pick up Love Big, Be Well, uh, read it, it's a treat. And if, if you haven't read uh, the authorized biography of Burning in My Bones on Eugene Peterson, pick that one up and read it. It's it's a gem. Uh, Wynn, thank you so much. What a pleasure to get to talk with you. Um, hope we can sometime do this again about maybe some other Port, Port William books down the road. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon and thanks again for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a good and meaningful conversation. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.